You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Welcome to Chthonia, the podcast connected to the Dark Feminine. I'm your host, Breach Burke, and today I want to start uh, right off with an episode on mother goddesses. This is actually the first full podcast episode that is being uh, sent out via uh, iTunes, Podomatic, uh, Spotify, and, and various other services. Um, and I want to start with mother goddesses because that is, in a way, that that's the basis of everything. That's uh, th- that's the if we're if we're going back to the uh, most ancient and most fundamental ideas about the feminine as as deity uh, then we need to look at mother goddesses now i should i should give you a little warning up front about my style i tend to have a as as somebody who's been a lecturer for about uh well gosh probably close to 18 years now um my lecturing style tends to be very a, a bit informal okay and some people when they listen to podcasts they're very used to something that's a little bit more scripted and a bit more structured and I'm trying to a certain degree to keep to a, a very structured approach here, but um, but I find as I'm I'm looking at things and I start to make connections right off. Um, I don't I don't want to forget about them, so I, I might talk about some things uh, up front. So um, here's a hoping that this is not going to be too uh, diffuse or too uh, all over the place or too rambly, um, because there's just so much material here to to talk about. And um, right now, just for purposes of just keeping things fairly simple and straightforward. I'm, when I talk about mother goddesses, I'm going to be looking at the Western tradition, uh, the Eastern traditions, um, and, and other parts of um, you know uh, Northern Europe, Eastern Europe. Uh, again, the Far East, India, there's and China. There's there's a whole uh, different tradition, uh, not necessarily unconnected. I should note. Uh, of of um, mother goddesses and you know and traditions about the feminine as it relates to forces like the earth, for example, and perhaps as it relates to celestial bodies like the sun or the moon. Um, but for our purposes right now, we're going to talk. About, we're going to stick to the Near East. Okay, we're going to stick to the ancient Near East. So I'm looking at ancient Greece, uh, Babylon, Sumeria, um, and and ancient Rome to a certain degree, mainly because a lot of these practices uh, came from uh, Asia Minor. And from the Near East at the time of the Punic Wars, uh, came to Rome, and became part of that whole uh, dynamic that occurred, probably around the time of the early Roman Empire, uh, the ground that was fertile for uh, Christianity to become uh, religion. So, um, so we'll we'll start with some of the the oldest known goddesses. Um, I should also note that Egypt is sort of its own thing as well. Um, Egyptian mythology is is very rich and and kind of almost has its own uh complete set of traditions that 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 predates all of this by you know quite a quite a good bit of time i would say at least a a couple thousand years if not more and so by the time we get to these periods of time in um you know when we think of what we think of as say greek and roman mythology we think of as classical mythology or um, even you know from the archaic period through the hellenistic periods of of greek thinking um, by this time, I mean, Egypt had already had a very long tradition of their own. Um, and, uh, and, and I should also note that the, 
the the earth which is probably one of the chief deities that we want to talk about in particular uh earth mothers in this episode uh the earth is is masculine in egyptian mythology uh the god geb is uh is the egyptian god of the earth and the the symbolisms there there are actually some parallels there but that but the whole system there is a little bit different um, so when, I, when I'm talking to you today, I'm going to be talking about uh, certain deities in particular, particularly the goddess Kibli, who is uh, identified as a Phrygian goddess, okay, which is, um, you were talking about Turkey, uh, what's, what's now modern-day Turkey. Uh, we're talking about um, the uh, Cappadocian uh, goddess Ma, uh, usually spelled uh, M-A with a circumflex over the A. And uh, Meter or Demeter, um, who is, uh, Demeter is, is considered to be one of the 12 Olympians, associated with agriculture and fertility. It's Demeter's daughter, Persephone, who was taken down to the underworld by Hades. Um, and her journey, of course, which actually resembles that of the Egyptian goddess Isis, is, um, you know, is certainly uh, part of this whole uh, dark narrative. And, of course, the goddess Rhea, who is the Titan goddess, who is the mother of all of the Olympian gods, and who uh, makes Zeus, Zeus ends up becoming king of the gods because um, his father Kronos has swallowed all of the other children. Uh, you know, all of his siblings were swallowed, and Rhea, who's tired of having her children swallowed after she gives birth, uh, gives him a stone to swallow and instead uh, has, hides Zeus away um, in an underground cave where he is protected um, by these, um, by the Corabantes or the Curetes, who are, who are kind of, uh, they, they, sometimes those two are, they're probably not exactly the same, but they're somewhat interchangeable. Uh, these sort of like dwarf-like creatures who, you know, play cymbals very loudly and, you know, and, and so therefore they're, you know, he's hidden away and their noise keeps the, you know, keeps uh, Kronos from hearing the baby crying. So Zeus is able to grow up uh, unimpeded and then challenge his father. Okay. Um, and also, of course, the goddess Gaia. She's probably one of the uh, most fundamental um, deities that we want to talk about because she is, a, you know, she is considered to be the Earth Mother. She comes out of chaos. Okay, um, in in the Greek creation mythology, uh, Gaia or Ge, the Earth Mother, comes out of chaos along with night, uh, Erebus, which is gloom, and uh, Tartarus, which is the the depths, the abyss. And then, of course, uh, Eros, which is desire. A little bit different from the... Uh, I think usually this Eros is conceived as being different from the Eros that we think of as being the son of uh, the goddess Aphrodite. Or if we think of perhaps in more um, modern thinking as Cupid, the Roman Cupid, uh, with his uh, little bow and arrow. Uh, you know, shoots his bow and arrow and, and you know, creates desire in the, in the person that he targets. Uh, person, god, you know, whoever it happens to be. So, um, so this eros is a little bit different. Has a little bit more to do with the sort of the the uh, progenitive and the creative drive of the universe. Okay, but um, my point about these these earth mothers, because we tend to think of when we think of mother goddess worship, there tends to be an idea that um, you know you think of the great mother, you think of the mother holding the child, um, you know, giving birth, you know, sort of the womb. There's a very nurturing and caring aspect of the of the great mother of you know of the mother the idea the idea of a, a great mother is someone who is comforting uh freud definitely had ideas about the mother that that sort of that one's one's rushing to the mother is sort of like a, a regression of an adult you know it's a return to the womb now you know, freud um the, you know the, there's a lot in freudian theory which you have to at the very at the, at the best take with a grain of salt and that's one of them um because the tendency towards the mother is both creative and destructive, 
Okay, it's uh, the, the mother is the one who uh, gives birth and who nurtures and who raises the child and um, you know uh, nourishes it, but at the same time the mother's also um, you know the devourer and that which destroys. And one of the one of the themes I've talked about, and I think I talk about this in the introductory video that I have on Cthonia.net and also on Patreon.com/Cthonia. Um, there's kind of an idea that uh, you know that, that mother goddesses again. We tend to there's there's a, there's a mythology of the, of the matriarchy, and this mythology suggests that mother goddess worship is the oldest form of worship in, in human existence. Okay. And that um, when mother when the mother ruled the earth, that everything was peaceful, and everything was was you know wonderful, and you know we were all you know very social and community oriented, and then the big bad patriarch sort of swept down from usually it's someplace in the Aral regions, um, Aral Mountains, and uh, they come into you know these these areas that we think of now as is influencing Western civilization, um, you know in, in in Greece, Asia Minor, you know the uh, these different areas of the Mediterranean and the, and the Aegean, and even points um, over in uh, Russia and, um, you know, and, and the associated states. And that, you know, after that, then uh, women were subjected to men, and now we have this sort of um, patriarchal uh, setup uh, that is now uh, dominated in a patriarchal religion that has dominated us. And... Um, now, I know there's a lot of people who are very heavily wedded to this theory. Um, I tend to be very skeptical of it myself. Um, in that book that I have coming out, uh, Death and the Maiden, with Algora Publishing, probably later this year, uh, which is actually a revision of my uh, doctoral dissertation, um, it, there's, you know, I, I had done some research on this idea. I was, particularly, I look at the, the work of uh, Dr. Cynthia Eller, who uh, who investigates this? Because because she I I, I, happen, I one thing I'd certainly agree with her no ma no matter how people see her review of the evidence uh, I certainly agree that um, to believe such a myth is to in a way um, it's to if we if we re embrace that myth as a society then we kind of re embrace the idea of biology as destiny you know that that woman in, in in her in her greatest fulfillment is is the mother is the one who gives birth to children and and uh, that that's her her function purpose and role in life and that's really an idea we need to get away from uh there's been a lot of talk about uh population uh, decrease uh, decreasing in the world and you know they, they, they people kind of view it as a crisis i don't view it as a crisis i mean this is a planet in a lot of trouble and a lot of it comes from our attitudes towards the earth and towards the earth mother that do that do indeed come out of a religion that's probably, uh, at least in the West, largely biblical in its uh, thinking because biblical creation mythology suggests that nature is corrupt. Okay, when you have the Adam and Eve story, uh, that that is a mythology that says nature and everything in it has been corrupted by sin. Okay, so uh, and, and even even sciences buy into this because there's this idea that. We, uh, as humans, dominate nature and that we can, uh, we somehow have the ability to control it or to fix it. And uh, we, that's, that's probably, um, any ability that we have is probably limited, okay? So, um, so keeping all of this in mind, um, at least one of the reasons that I really don't buy the, the ancient matriarchy myth, whatever other, you know, you can argue about the ancient evidence uh, on that. Uh, ultimately, we're never going to really know. 
But um, even if we want to suppose there was such a cult, the idea that we all lived in like this happy, peaceful time where, you know, um, everybody was loving and nourishing is probably, um, well, it's um, naive, perhaps. I don't, uh, and part, part of the reason I say that is that because what you know, we know about mother goddess worship, okay, is not, um, we're not talking about a, a kind and sweet and gentle affair. We're talking about generally a very bloody, violent, and gory affair um, that may, at least in certain uh, circumstances, also involved castration for men, uh, which could be, you know, in at least part of the um, ancient difficulty uh, that we have with, um, you know, with, with, with goddesses and with uh, goddess energy. Part of the reason that goddess energy um, might be demonized may have to do with that. That might be something that, that Freud got right, you know, the idea of castration anxiety. Um, because that's, that is something um, certainly about the great mothers. I mean, we see a lot of them, um, particularly in the Far East, you know, situated with swords and, and chopping heads off and, um, and perhaps other parts. So, you know, uh, we, we, so you have this, so this, there's this idea of the earth mother, um, this, this aspect, this dark aspect, as we'll call it, um, you know, for lack of, of better phrasing, uh, is not, um, I, I don't see, I, I don't tend to see the mother goddesses, you know, they, they, they certainly have that, that caring, nurturing, um, nourishing kind of an aspect, but, you know, and, and protective. But the protective aspect is also part of what uh, we call the, the archetype of the terrible mother. And we say terrible, we don't mean you're crap at it. I mean, terrible just means, you know, it, it's something terrifying. It's something scary. And something, you know, you better be, you, know, you have to be careful with. It's an energy that you don't want to um, mess too much with, um, you know, sort of without... Uh, for you know, without without careful consideration, let's put it that way. Okay, so let's first let's start talking about some of these um, goddesses. Let's talk about Kibbele first, the the Phrygian goddess, because she is, seems to be one of the ones who is the oldest, uh, at least in the historical record that we that we know of. Okay, and um, so we're going to talk about her. And like I said, I mentioned we're going to talk about Ma, the Cappadocian Ma, for, which is also a part of Anatolia. And then Meter and Demeter, um, and also uh, Rhea, which was connected with these two. And the term Meter itself uh, is the Greek word for mother, okay, or mater in Latin, okay, and that's where we have the word that—that's the our word for matter. That's our word for material, as well as sort of our root word for mother. Okay, so the material world, and it's probably worth noting the attitude that that which is material uh, is somehow lesser than that which is spiritual. Okay, um, I'm not saying that that's the case, but I am pointing out that um, this is sort of an automatic or unconscious attitude that the things of the world, and I mean, you can understand that in a, in a more practical sense, um, in, in the Buddhist sense of, you know, um, the material things tend to also be temporal. They, they change, they vanish, they go away. Um, but... Um, but, you know, we, we have gotten, if you want to go, as, if you want to take it to the extremes of... Um, the um, you know of the of certain um, Gnostics who had suggested that all matter was evil. Okay, um, that's you know this is another uh, you know this is another form of that. So it's just something to bear in mind when we talk about Earth mothers. Uh, the fact that this uh, wonderful nurturing, um, nourishing, and also that you know where the grave and where death is, uh, the devourer. You know, 
you know, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. Uh, also, we, you know, we tend to associate with things that, if not necessarily outright evil, certainly with that which is lesser. Okay. Okay, so Kibbley. Okay. Now, the, the word Kibbley um, comes from a term that uh, is related to uh, the word for black stone. Okay. And I, I find this interesting because I always think of in, in Islam, uh, when pil uh, pilgrims go to Mecca for the Hajj, uh, what they go is they, um, you know, there, there is a sort of on a site what's supposed to be a, a sort of temple of, of Abraham. And in there is the Kaaba, which is the black stone, okay, which is, a, which is a black stone that is there. Now, they don't worship the black stone, okay. They don't view the black stone as being connected to a mother goddess. But it's terribly interesting that this rather ancient artifact that is in a holy city connected with one of the major monotheisms happens to be a black stone, okay. And um, so if I tell you this, let me tell you the, uh, the story of, of Kibbele. Um, and I have this... I have it written out for myself because it's easier for me to um, to do it this way. Uh, I actually prefer Grimal's version of the story. Um, Grimal, um, Pierre Grimal has the is in the Dictionary of Classical Mythology, uh, which a Penguin puts out. Okay, so there's actually several. As true with almost all mythologies, there's several stories connected to Kibli. Um, she's listed here as a Phrygian goddess, often called the mother of the gods or the great mother. She governs the whole of nature. Her cult spread all over the world, all over the whole of the Greek world, and later into the Roman world as well. Um, again, as I said, after the Second Punic War, when a lot of these ideas were brought into Rome. Uh, Kibbele was often identified with the Greek mythographers with Rhea, as I mentioned, who is the, the Titan goddess, uh, spouse of Kronos, spouse and sister of Kronos, who um, births all of the Olympian gods, uh, including Zeus. The Rhea worshipped on Mount Kibbele in Phrygia was said to be uh, was said to be Kibbele. Uh, she figures in in uh, in myth uh, in the story of Adistus and Attis. Um, Attis sometimes appears as her lover, but more often as her companion. It's also possible that her personality was concealed behind that of the uh, hermaphrodite Adistus, uh, sorry, the lover of Attis after his emasculation. Okay, now. Um, I would like to um, tell you that story, the story of um, Adistus, because there's, there's a, again, there's a couple different uh, versions of this story, um, but it's very, okay. So here's, again, speaking from Grimal, here's, here's another, here's another uh, version of that. Okay. In Pausanias's <clears throat> version of this story, Zeus spilt some semen on the earth, which begot Adistus, a hermaphrodite. Now, of course, a hermaphrodite, I assume, you know, if you're not familiar with the term, is basically somebody who's dual-sexed, both male and female. Uh, the other gods castrated Adistus, and from his slash her penis sprang an almond tree. Uh, Nana, the daughter of Sangarius, picked an almond from the tree, placed it in her lap, and became pregnant, and gave birth to Attis. She abandoned him, but he was cared for by a goat. Uh, just, by the way, as an aside, this is a very typical... Um, motif in hero mythology of, of the child who is born, who is abandoned, and then raised by animals before he um, reaches his, uh, you know, sort of adult destiny. When Attis grew up, Adistus, by this time purely female, fell in love with him, but he was sent to Pisinius to marry the king's daughter. Adistus appeared after the marriage hymn had been sung, whereupon <clears throat> Attis castrated himself and died. Adistus was so upset that she was granted that Addis's body should not decay. In fact, in a lot of versions, um, the, the remaining body re returns as a, um, 
as, as violets, as little flowers. Okay. Uh, in another version, Zeus, having tried in vain to marry Kybele, let some of his semen fall on a nearby rock. Now, marry here in this case is probably just have sex with, but um, this is, uh, so he wished to um, get involved with Kybele. Didn't, didn't, didn't succeed. This begot the hermaphrodite Agdistus. Dionysus, okay, the god of wine, but also a very complex figure who we will probably talk about in future episodes at uh, greater length. Uh, Dionysus made Agdistus drunk and castrated him or her, uh, him slash her, I should say. From the blood grew a pomegranate tree. Nana became pregnant by inserting one of the fruits in her womb and gave birth to Attis. At Sangarius's wish, she abandoned him, but he was taken in by some passers-by and reared on honey and billy goat's milk. Okay, so this is another version. Hence his name, Attis equals he, means he-goat, Atticus, or beautiful in Phrygian. Attis grew very handsome, and King Midas of Pisinius determined he should marry one of his daughters. But during an argument between Agdistus and Kybele, Attis and his attendants became frenzies, at, frenzied. Attis castrated himself beneath the pine tree and died. Kibbele buried him, but violets grew around the pine tree from the blood which had fallen from his wounds. Kibbele also buried Midas's daughter, who had killed herself in despair, and violets grew from her blood and also an almond tree over her tomb. Zeus granted Agdistus that Attis's body should not decay, his hair should continue to grow, and his little fingers should move. Agdistus founded a community of priests and a festival in Attis's honor at Pisinus. Okay. So this is the story of um, Kybele uh, and Attis, uh, or Odysseus and Attis. There's uh, you see the relationship between the two there, um, and certainly Attis is a an important figure in the Kybele cult. Okay, particularly the sort of spontaneous castration that's said to go on uh, in that particular cult. Uh, there now the priests of that cult were known as Gali, uh, G A L L I. And uh, these, the, these were usually, now these were, again, there, there's some, I have read a lot of different scholarly um, papers debating this, uh, whether this was a requirement or not, but many of them were castrated. They were eunuchs. And um, I, I sort of, not, not, not looking to digress here, but I, it is, I think it is kind of interesting here because um, in Carl Jung's book, Answer to Job, um, he talks a little bit about the book of Revelation. Now, eunuchs, the, the, where we tend to see the term eunuchs uh, is in the, in the New Testament of the Bible, the idea of the eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. In fact, I think there's a, there's a book that came out probably about more than 20 years ago now with that title, um, and it had, which has to do with celibacy. Um, but uh, I'm going to read this from Jung's answer to Job, because this is a rather interesting piece that is connected. Um... He's talking about the book of Revelation, and he says, uh, The torrent of negative feelings seems to be inexhaustible, and the dire events continue their course. Out of the sea come monsters with horns, that is, endowed with power. The horrid progeny of the deep. Faced with all this darkness and destruction, man's terrified consciousness quite understandably looks round for a mountain of refuge, an island of peace and safety. John, therefore, weaves a vision of the Lamb on Mount Zion, where the 144,000 elect and redeemed gather round the Lamb. Um... These are the male virgins, which were not defiled with women. They are the ones who, following in the footsteps of the young dying God, okay, keep this in mind, have never become complete human beings, but have voluntarily renounced their share in the human lot and have said no to the continuance of life on earth. Okay, now there's a footnote here from Jung, which is interesting. He says they really belong to the cult of the Great Mother, since they correspond to the emasculated Gali. Um, 
uh, see the strange passage in Matthew 19.12 about the eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, like the priests of Kibble, who used to castrate themselves in honor of her son Attis. Okay, so <clears throat> we, we see this idea. It's interesting um, because also if you look at Jesus, Jesus is another dying god. And yes, there is a connection. There is a motif in mythology that you'll read about in, you know, if you read classical mythology textbooks of the dying and resurrecting vegetation god, of which Attis is probably, possibly the first. I don't know if he's, you know, we don't know if he's truly the first, but certainly um, seems to be one of the oldest stories of a dying and resurrecting uh, god of vegetation. And the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus, while not strictly a, a vegetation or agricultural story, um, maybe the, the, the mythological concept behind it may be related. And it's very interesting um, that these uh, these figures that appear, who are um, you know who you know who are you know who are celibate via castration, are actually. Um, the, uh, you know, there's a connection there to the, the cult of the Great Mother. Okay. Um, so that was, that's sort of a discussion of Kibbele. Now, Kibbele herself, I mean, other than this sort of connection to Attis and the, and the cult, um, we don't necessarily hear a whole lot of other things about her. Um, in, in one version, she actually, uh, when Dionysus goes mad, she actually cures him of his madness. Um, and... Uh, you know, if we connect her to the other mothers, like the goddess Rhea, for instance, um, Rhea is frequently invoked um, in in ancient Greece, uh, and has and has her rights. Um, Gaia, however, who is sort of the the, the predecessor of Rhea as kind of a, an earth mother, uh, doesn't really tend to have much of a uh, of a cult at all. In fact, I had made uh, some notes on it, and let me just see uh, what I have here. Um, because, uh, yeah, from what I can tell, um, you know, Gaia was not, um, yeah, here we go. Uh, oaths were sworn in the name of Gaia in ancient Greece, who was considered to be, and those were considered to be the most binding oaths, were oaths uh, made to the Earth Mother. Uh, also worshipped under the epithet um, uh, Anisidora, which means giver of gifts. Other epithets was uh, Caligenia, uh, Eurosternos, and Pandoros. Uh, it says, in ancient times, Gaia was mainly worshipped alongside Demeter and is part of the cult of Demeter and does not seem to have had a separate cult. So you have this kind of Rhea, Demeter, um, Gaia, um, sort of, you know, mixing together of those, those deities. Being a Chthonic deity, okay, having to do with the underworld, uh, black animals were sacrificed to her. Okay, so, um, yeah, so Gaia is definitely... Um, associated with the earth and everything that is that is under it <clears throat> but um and if as we look at the uh the mythologies of her she's not necessarily again she's the one who uh brings forth all of these gods and her coupling with uh oranos the uh god of the sky um she uh you know eventually um this this just becomes sort of disastrous as he becomes ashamed of all of his children and pushes them under the earth uh as a as one of my um uh professors in graduate school had said, she says, try to imagine being a woman trying to give birth and having your husband continually trying to stuff the baby back into your womb. Uh, yeah, and as you can imagine, she didn't take kindly to this. So she enlisted the help of Kronos, whom, um, interestingly, is the god of time, uh, to castrate his father. And from the um, castrated genitals of Oranos, uh, 
Um, you have birthed um, the, um, you know, you have certain um, giants that are born out of the water and also the goddess Aphrodite, interestingly. Uh, she's, uh, that's what the word means, foam-born. She comes, uh, on, comes out of the ocean. And for, at that point, earth and sky are now separated when they would, after they would unite. And, uh, and it's interesting that it's time that separates earth and sky. I mean, that, that's why I tend to feel creation myths have more to do with, um, you know, sort of metaphorical of the conditions of space, time, and, and living in the world than they do with, um, you know, any kind of actual story of how things came to be, the way people seem to curiously read, particularly the biblical myth for some reason. But okay, so we, we have this, this, this conception of the Earth Mother. Now, um, Ma, uh, the Cap Cappadocian um, goddess who has been compared to Rhea, also to uh, Bellona, who is a goddess of war, okay? And that's interesting. Um, one of the motifs that I, I've mentioned, um, again, I think in my introductory lecture, or pod, you know, well, introductory video, is I talk about... Um, the idea of the, the the relationship between love and war. Okay, so you have a lot of these goddesses who are supposed to be, um, again, to represent all of these attributes that we associate with women. You know, you know, loving and nourishing and, and caring. But they also, uh, or just even just just love and the act of love, and the ecstasy that comes with love. But it's also connected to that that passion that um, can cause rage and that causes conflict. So it's very interesting, the, the relationship between uh, Ma and Bologna. Um, now, interestingly, um, let me just, um, yeah, uh, the Ma of Cappadocia also is called um, her epithets. She has epithets that mean invincible and the bringer of victory, which is very much like the goddess Athena. Uh, there's Athena um, Nike, the, the goddess of, um, or we might say Nike, which again is the Athena, uh, Nike's goddess of victory. And one of the temples, the great statues of Athena that you see of her, she's holding um, uh, Nike in her in her hand. Uh, and you can also think of uh, Durga, the goddess Durga in the east, who um, you know who slays the uh, the ego that rules the, uh, the the Mahisasura that rules the three worlds. Okay, so um, so again, you have this idea of this mother goddess who is also a goddess of victory. Okay, and so that that may well come from the east. Um, where it's, you know, some of these, again, some of these, um, these linkages, it, to me, I, I have, I've seen far too much, um, from the Vedic system, you know, when we talk about Indo-European, uh, connections, uh, there's, there's quite a bit there that, that, that convinces me that there's, there's got to be some kind of a connection between, uh, the Far East and, um, uh, you know, what, what came into Asia Minor and to, to Persia and later Macedonia and Greece and, and that area. Uh, but there's definitely a connection between um, the deities of the East and the Near East, as as it were, which might not be that startling. But there have been claims that there, you know, certainly years ago that there was no connection. Um, uh, uh, Walter Burkert has a book, I believe it's called Orientalizing the West. Um, it came out in the '90s, that explores the connections between. Um, ancient Greek religion and you know sort of ancient Babylonian and, and Persian. You know, explores the connection between the two. Um, both in, in religion and in, in art. Um, but interestingly, okay, so if we go back to Ma, her again, her rites and rituals, uh, she's often conflated with Kibbele, she's often conflated with Rhea as well, and she's often associated with the transition to adulthood for both boys and for girls. So interestingly, it's that, mo and, and of course, what is the transition? It's a sexual one. 
That's that movement, which, um, if you think about it, um, if, if you think about the experience of that transition, it is both, you know, it, it's both a, you know, a, a sexual opening up the first time that one experiences that desire, but it also can be a very violent impulse as well, or it can, it can carry with it a great deal of, um, of pain. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about the connection between Earth mothers and particularly young girls in their sort of introduction into uh, to menstruation. Um, okay. Um, okay, so um, if we go back, if we just look for a moment at the rites of Kibbele and also of Ma, um, Rome, uh, now, now, of course, all again, all these religions came into Rome, and the forms that we, we tend to hear about, or see written about, at least, are, are from that particular time period, you know, from Plutarch and, and from Pausanias and from other writers of that period that will talk about, um, you know, you know these particular religions that came in, uh, Mithraism, you know, these ones that came in around this time, uh, just before, uh, you know, again, you know, before Augustus, and or just maybe right around that time and then you know and of course with the rise uh, what eventually became the rise of christianity and the christianization of europe uh, and the roman empire okay and um interestingly now of course because of these rites um i think i have i have some notes in here um, about the rites themselves um let me find my notes here okay yeah, this is going. This is going back to Franz Cumont's work on um, the Oriental religions, as he calls them, and and Cumont is a little bit dated, but uh, but he does make the statement in his lecture. He says the religion of Phrygia was perhaps even more violent than that of Thrace. Thrace is where uh, Dionysus is believed to be from initially. Um, in the midst of these, their orgies and after wild dances, some of the worshippers voluntarily wounded themselves, became intoxicated with the view of the blood, which they then besprinkled their altars, and they believed they were uniting themselves with the divinity. Okay, and uh, when these kinds of things happened in Rome, um, just sort of like um, Livy's account of the Dionysus cult and its banning in, or the Bacchus cult in 186 BCE, um, you know, they, there, there was also an attempt to sort of clamp down on this. Okay, um, now I'm just going to read this. This is actually from my own work. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I quote Jung here. I said, the gory nature of this magna mater cult may seem shocking, but Jung suggests this is characteristic of the Earth Mother. The Earth Mother is always chthonic and is occasionally related to the moon, either through blood sacrifice already mentioned or through child sacrifice, or else because she is adorned with a sickle moon. In a pictorial plastic representations, the mother is dark, deepening to black or red, these being her principal colors. You also think about the black Madonnas, um, like the one in Chartres, uh, for example. And with primitive or animal expressions of face. In form, she not infrequently resembles the Neolithic ideal of the Venus of uh, Brasempui or of that of Willendorf, or again the sleeper of Hal, uh, of Hal Seflieni. Uh, now and then, I have come across multiple breasts arranged like those of a sow. The Earth Mother plays an important part in the woman's unconscious, for all her manifestations are described as powerful. This shows in such cases that the Earth Mother element in the conscious mind is abnormally weak and requires strengthening. Now, this, of course, is the psychological view that Jung takes. Um, and in this, you know, in the idea that the symbolism of this is that we, um, that this is the aspect of ourselves that is the weakest. We perceive 
that which is feminine is weak because it happens to be weak in us. It's our rationality that is the strongest, that, that tends to be the most developed in us, okay? And this, uh, and the feminine, the feminine intuition, the emotion, um, you know, this feeling, this sort of, what we tend to think of as the irrational is less developed in us, or the one things that we sort of dismiss or we discount as being um, not important somehow, uh, or devalued. So, um, you know, so Jung makes this observation, and certainly, um, you know, we these these, these particular rites, which were, were very chaotic, and again, they they resemble the the, the rites of Dionysus or Bacchus. Um, you know, there, there's there's quite a lot of similarity between the accounts of the two, um, and these, of course, are shocking to people. And of course, in addition, you have to consider that these rites also uh, raised up the common people. Uh, these were not necessarily the rights of the elite, okay? This was the rights of the slaves and the women and the, um, you know, uh, foreigners. I mean, people who were um, not considered to be um, the civilized uh, and, and wealthy power holders or, or kings or rulers. These were the people who were sort of the underclass, and they were the ones who sort of ruled this. So there's there's a lot, there's many, many uh, layers to the um, the othering and the difficulty of these particular cults. Um, now, interestingly, okay, if we talk about Demeter, okay, who's again connected to these, and as we've noted that her, the Gaia cult and, um, the Rhea cult also tend to be connected to the Demeter cult. Um, there's, uh, you know, the, the, the ancient mysteries, uh, the, um, you know, the cults of, of Demeter and Eleusis and, uh, or the, the cult of Dionysus, these, you know, these, these explored the mysteries of sort of death and, and rebirth, which were, you know, again, originally associated with these sort of fertility cults. If you consider the cycle of the seasons, that things die in the winter and they come back again in spring. Uh, and, of course, the, the loss of Persephone to the underworld and then her um, return, re reuniting with her mother. Uh, this is also sort of a motif for that particular cycle, and that I'll discuss in a separate episode. Um... But the mysteries themselves, uh, very very little is known about them. Um, but, but we do have this sense of they are related to death, and 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 the part of the point, at least part of the point of them. And I'm not going to you know claim to um, reduce all of the mysteries to sort of you know one one idea. But at least part of what we're dealing with here is the idea of overcoming death or overcoming the fear of death. Now, not. Really, I mean, they don't. People, I don't think these um, worshippers necessarily felt that they were going to overcome death, but simply that they could make a death a better experience for themselves uh, by undergoing the uh, sort of purifications of the mysteries. Okay, and it's um, that, that this was, you know, they were somehow entering another space, and um, you know. And the mysteries, the, the, one, of the, one of the tremendous ironies about the mystery cults is that um, you know, they tend to also be connected with Orphism, idea that um, it seems to come out of uh, thinking from, the, from Persia and, and from that area. And, you know, it's connected with Zoroastrianism, it's connected with Pythagoreanism, uh, and with early philosophy. The early philosophers certainly seem to embrace an Orphic way of thinking. Or the Orphics, among everything else that they believed, because they had their own separate cosmogony, and that Dionysus is kind of almost like, you know, you can almost make comparisons between Dionysus and Jesus. He's, he's torn apart by the Titans, and then he's resurrected. His heart is saved and resurrected by Athena. And then, uh, you know, out of his ashes, you know, Zeus strikes, you know, Zeus strikes the Titans dead and out of the ashes come humans. 
Okay, but the Titans have already eaten of Dionysus, so therefore, um, you know, they, they have a bit of that, the divinity of Dionysus in themselves. So, so, you know, this is the way, at least, you know, this at least implied in certain parts of Plato that this is what, um, why human nature, human nature has that divine potential, but at the same time uh, has these um, sort of uh, base, as he, you know, titanic um, tendencies. Okay. So it's um, so Orphic thinking. Orphic thinking is probably the first time, at least in Greek culture and at least in that area, that we start talking about ideas of salvation or being saved from certain fates in death. Okay, so um, you know because this was the, you know it wasn't the idea. Everybody went to Hades when they died. You know everybody went to the same place. You know you you return to a place under the earth. Um, you know the Jews had Sheol. Um, there are other versions in, um, in, in ancient Babylon. Um, there's uh, Aralu and uh, Kigal, the two that come to mind, uh, two names for the underworld. And there's uh, and the Romans, of course, had Dis, and they had uh, what was later known as Inferni. Inferni is probably a little bit more like Gehenna, the idea of a fiery underworld, which was not uh, really part of the original conception. It was just, it didn't matter who you were, death just took everybody. Um, but the idea here was that with certain, you know, formulas and passwords, you you know, there was some parts of the underworld that were nicer than others, and, you know, maybe you could end up in the nicer parts uh, if you were going to spend um, your entire death, you know, whatever infinite stretch that seems to be, uh, you could spend it in a place at least that was not quite as gloomy, okay? So, you know, so the mysteries kind of start from that idea, and then, then we start getting into ideas, um, of, of salvation later on, which may come from Zoroastrianism and may have some other uh, sources. Uh, I, I tended to see that idea as coming from philosophy to some degree, uh, maybe even a little bit more so than Zoroastrianism, but again, that is sort of a digression. Um, okay, so if we talk about uh, the, the stories of um, these particular goddesses and their, their cult, um, I'd like to say for a moment, talk for a moment about the, um, the sort of the archetype of the great mother. Because again, we have these sort of, of violent rites, and, and for some, that's still going to be, there's going to be still sort of a disconnect there between that and sort of the images of the great mother as being kind of, um, you know, you know, you, you see these images of the, the mother holding the baby and nursing the baby in their arms. This idea of preserving life rather than being destructive of it. Um, I think there's a connection between these and um, sort of the whole mystery of femininity, which is really expressed very well, I think, in a lot of the ancient goddesses, because whatever their main attributes are, they often have darker ones as well. Uh, something I'm going to talk about a little more when we talk about Artemis and Athena and uh, some of these other goddesses that um, at least apparently um, have these aspects that are not, not associated with the Chthonic, but but there are some. Um, I'm going to return to Jung again for a moment. Um, he talks about, he, there's an essay called On Psychological um, Aspects of the Kore. And Kore is the Greek world, word for um, young girl. And as I mentioned, a lot of this, um, a lot of rites associated with the, the Earth Mother and with this, um, have, I mentioned having to do with menstruation. And there's, there's, there seems to be a connection between uh, at least some of this and, and the mystery of the, the bleeding woman, you know, at, at the, you know, at the start of womanhood. 
Um, and I'm going to read, read this quote from Jung. Uh, as a matter of practical observation, the Kore often appears in a woman as an unknown young girl, not infrequently as Gretchen from Dr. Faustus, or the unmarried mother. Another frequent modulation is the dancer, who often form by borrowings from classical knowledge, in which case the maiden appears as the Korabant, the Maenad, or the Nymph. An occasional variant is the Nixie or Water Sprite, who betrays her superhuman nature by her fishtail. Sometimes the Kore and mother figures slither down altogether to the animal kingdom, the favorite representations then being the cat or the snake or the bear, or else some black monster of the underworld like the crocodile or other salamander-like saurian creatures. The maiden's helplessness exposes her to all sorts of dangers, for instance, of being devoured by reptiles or ritually slaughtered like a beast of sacrifice. Oddly enough, the various tortures and obscenities are carried out by an earth mother. Okay, so it's um, it's interesting, this, this kind of, um, you know, th this perception of womanhood as representing this kind of, um, the sacrifice of the virgin in the sense that um, the woman no longer, you know, now now is the potential to enter this sort of mysterious realm of, of reproduction, which certainly um, in a model like that of ancient Greece, where the family or the tribal household was certainly the center of society. This is before we have the city-state when you may have, um, it may be more about the individual because there's more diversity, there's more, um, there's more um, thinking, there's more, uh, there's more of a separation there. Uh, certainly in the, where, you know, where family is central, that particular role of the woman is going to be particularly important. Um, but there's also, um, you know, it's also worth mentioning the, um, this idea of, um, you know, these, these sort of uh, frenzied rites, okay, that we associate, and which we frequently will associate with pagan things. I mean, think about the, um, the movies that we watch about ancient pagan rites, you know, your Wicker Manish uh, type of, type of film, you know, folk horror where we see these, um, you know, pagans either, you know, committing blood sacrifice or, you know, just engaging in these rituals that we tend to think of as, as sort of barbaric, these sort of uh, rites of passages. And as I mentioned, these are these are sort of connected with uh, what's foreign, with what's other. Um, you know, to enter in the most practical sense in society, for for a girl to enter womanhood, there's there's an element of that that danger there. You know, you're entering a dangerous space where you encounter an other. Okay, and uh, it's worth noting that the ancient Greeks had a very different relationship to the other than we do now. We tend to think of the other as something to be kept out or to put a wall against it or to exterminate it. At least that's kind of the um, and that the popular thinking, and that's because we tend to think in the terms of the good and evil dichotomy, and we tend to associate with what's other or what's unfamiliar with what's potentially evil. And that's just simply not true. The other is something that is unknown to us, but not necessarily evil. And the Greeks handled this through the, the whole um, uh, no concept of xenia or hospitality or guest friendship. So the idea was when a stranger comes to your house, uh, that stranger, um, you know, you welcome the stranger, you give them gifts, you feed them, you feast them for several days, and then you tell stories. Okay, you know, you have your bards tell the stories, and then they tell you, you know, where they're from, and they tell they tell you about themselves. And the idea is, among other things, that um, if you treat your guests well, um, that when you go and you are in a foreign place and you become the foreigner, that you will also be treated well. Uh, you see evidence of this in, in early writing. Certainly, okay, in the Iliad and Homer, 
um, Glaucus and Diomedes uh, meet on the battlefield, and they, um, you know, and, and they realize, hey, my, my grandfather hosted your grandfather. Let's exchange weapons and not fight. I mean, it's, 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 there's, it, it's, and, and those who break the, violate um, hospitality uh, generally suffer terrible consequences. The gods are not pleased with people who violate hospitality, you know, who go in and um, murder their hosts or murder their guests. Uh, that, that was highly frowned upon, um, you know, and, and it was assumed that, you know, that, that was, that was a, like a taboo transgression. You just simply did not do that. That was, you did not treat the other with, you know, with disrespect. Um, and so, you know, so, so it's a very different approach to the other. I, I tend to view it uh, magically as having to do with uh, the way, you know, the idea of the pact um, or the relationships to the dead or to the ancestors. Uh, in the sense that, um, especially, you know, when, when you have people who call up the restless dead, uh, the idea is that uh, if I do something nice for you, maybe you'll do something nice for me. Okay, if I, if I offer you something, if I give you an offering and then I ask you, could you do this thing for me? If I, if I can give something to you that, that you want, then you can perhaps give something to me that I want. And, uh, you know, and we still see this in, in more um, contemporary religion in the idea of petitionary prayer, you know, this idea that you can, you know, ask God for something. Uh, but typically it's assumed in, in that kind of relationship that there's nothing that you can give to God, except, of course, your, your uh, uh, devout obedience, um, which, which is another, um, another topic entirely, which we won't uh, get into here. Um, however, I did want to mention one more thing before I uh, finish up here on this particular uh, idea. Um, and this is, this is another quote from Jung where he talks about uh, the way that these, the, the rites, particularly the Dionysian rites, which we can also connect to the mother goddess rites, uh, and, and how they have changed in religion over time. And he says in um, his one essay, the Dionysian element has to do with emotions and affects which found no suitable religious outlets in the predominantly Apollonian cult and ethos of Christianity. The medieval carnivals and jeux de pomme in the church were abolished relatively early. Consequently, the carnival became secularized and with it divine intoxication vanished from the sacred precincts. Intoxication, that most direct form of possession, turned away from the gods and enveloped the human world with its exuberance and pathos. The pagan religions met this danger by giving drunken ecstasy a place within their cult, uh, just as one also gives uh, death and, and, and the other a place within their cult. Heraclitus doubtless saw what was at the back of it when he said, but Hades is that same Dionysus in whose honor they go mad and keep the feast of the vat. For this very reason, orgies were granted religious license, so to exercise the danger that threatened from Hades. Our solution, however, has served to throw the gates of hell wide open. And uh, as I've noted, the, what Jung means by that is that these sort of, um, these, these elements that we have of the, um, you know, the, these sort of, what we tend to think of as being more barbaric or more animalistic or more violent uh, or more connected with these, um, you know, the, these sort of core desires, uh, sexual desire, okay? Um, the, and then, of course, again, this connection between these mother goddesses and war. Uh, there's a um, there's this sense of uh, the mother whose bloodlust must be gratified, as, as Eric Neumann uh, talks about in his conception of the terrible mother. And this, so you know, and again, the, you know, the connection between this and menstruation and and the beginning of womanhood in particular, and also the dangers of childbirth. Um, it's there's 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 a whole connection there that that we have tended to sort of sanitize. We we try to get rid of everything that is associated with um, 
you know, these, these sort of aspects of the feminine that, that, that tend to make us uncomfortable in a culture uh, that, is, that is, you know, um, uncomfortable with sexuality in a lot of ways. Um, as I think it was noted, um, I think I was listening to one of April Shaley's reports where she talks about how every, every you think about most of the curse words that we have, probably 99.9% of them have to do either with sex or defecation, okay? They have to do with these, um, you know, these, these very earthy kind of impulses. And, you know, and, and the, and again, the discomfort, uh, what was I, I was just reading something on Facebook today about um, a, these, these Christian um, art books for these, these very conservative schools and colleges where they take the, the nudes in the, in the arts and they cover them up. They're like, we're all wearing smocks. It's like, wait, what? You know, it's like the, the female body, the discomfort people have with breastfeeding, the whole, you know, the, the whole, um, you know, the way in which the, the body is considered to be something shameful and something that uh, needs to be hidden, particularly the female body. And the, the whole idea of rape culture in which, you know, uh, a woman is assumed to have shown her body in an inappropriate way and therefore somehow she is at fault for any kind of resulting um, uh, sexual harassment or advance or attack. So, you know, there's there's a lot to kind of, there's a lot of connections here to really think about. And some of this kind of seems to go back to our um, you know, this, this, the, these very deep, these sort of very dark associations, um, with the mother, which we, again, which we tend to gloss over in our kind of, um, you know, Virgin Mary idealized way of thinking about things. Um, you know, I mean, the idea of a virgin giving birth, um, you know, that, that is, that is another mythological motif, but there is a, there's kind of a denial that is a sanitizing, a purifying of, um, a sex, you know, the the cycle of, of menstruation and that kind of thing and everything that goes along with it is somehow being, um, you know, it's something to be to be cleaned up, to be put away, to not be talked about. And um, it's worth noting uh, what kind of psychological impact that has. Uh, that's all I'm going to go on for this week because I, I could potentially go on and on and on. Before I go, I just want to quickly note that... Um, I want to tell you about uh, Cthonia.net, which may well be the place where you have accessed this podcast. Um, but if you, uh, you know, if you would like to know more about the work I'm doing in this podcast and in my writings and lectures, please visit Cthonia.net if you have not already for my introductory video, which should explain some of the background um, as to the things I'm talking about in these episodes. Um, and you can also access the Cafe Press Cathonia shop featuring some very excellent swag designed by the very talented J.R. Malpair. Uh, on this site, I also will be offering uh, online lectures um, that probably by fall 2019, I'm, I'm trying to sort of tailor them, um, you know, the, the, these works on myth, folklore, and religion, particularly with the relationship to the dark feminine, and also some things for practitioners who um, would like to perhaps work with these energies. Uh, I'm hoping to have something live by this fall, uh, so I would be offering those courses also on Cthonia.net, and I'll be offering tarot readings on a limited basis and some other services, uh, which you can check out there as you know, as far as you know, pricing and availability and that kind of thing. And uh, if you would, and if you would like to uh, also be a regular, oh, I should also mention before I forget is that uh, the Cthonia.net also features access to my different uh, publications that are coming out. Uh, including my book, uh, Death and the Maiden, The Curious Relationship Between Fear of Death and Fear of the Feminine, with Algora Publishing, which is currently in the works. That is a summer project, which hopefully will be out by the end of this year. 
um, and a couple of other fiction projects I have that are connected to um, this particular theme. Um, one whole series that is on the goddess Morrigan, and then there's another work um, that, that also connects in, uh, perhaps not obviously at first, but, but does actually connect into this theme of the, of the dark feminine or the, um, the hidden feminine. So, um, so if you are, um, if you are interested in this and, uh, again, you know, check out Chthonia.net if you haven't been there already. And if you would like to become a regular contributor to these works and to help support their, their development and eventual, uh, publication, or, um, if you would like to, uh, you know, in their, um, availability, please consider becoming a patron and signing up at patreon.com slash Depending on the donation level, rewards can include early access to episodes, extra content, previews of my writing, uh, free swag from the Chthonia store, and discounts on lectures and readings. I thank every one of you for listening. I deeply appreciate your contributions to my work. So till next time.